Uh, so today uh, we're coming, Adam's kind of flagged this, we're coming to a, a pretty significant moment in the life of our church, significant, uh, because we're going to be electing uh, uh, up to two new elders for our church. And because this is such a significant moment, uh, we're taking a, a one-week uh, break from our series, looking through the Book of Romans, uh, just to take a closer look at this passage from 1 Timothy chapter 3 and the biblical qualifications for eldership. Uh, for some of you, you probably like it. I was just kind of getting into the series in Romans. I was enjoying that, starting to get my head around the book. Uh, why have we got to interrupt it for some boring Presbyterian process that I really don't care about? Perhaps what, that's what some of you uh, are thinking, maybe not in those words exactly. Uh, and so why is it that you should care about this topic? Why should you be tuning in to God's word today? I'll give you a few examples of why this topic is so important. Uh, this is a, a really important topic because not that long ago, I was talking with a woman who had been the victim of horrible abuse of authority at the hands of a Christian leader in a local church. Damaged her horribly to, to the extent that she nearly walked away from her faith. Certainly found it hard to ever be a part of a church. But it's, it's incredibly important, uh, this topic, because uh, not that long after I became a minister, I was meeting with another, another minister, and it became apparent that he was only staying in gospel ministry for, for four or five more years because he wanted to earn a bunch more money so he could buy a nicer house for himself in retirement. There was no evident love for the Lord Jesus, no desire for the glory of God, no desire to see people coming to know Christ, just simply a love of money to get himself a nicer house. Uh, it's a really important topic because uh, a couple of years ago I met with a man and, and we were talking about why it is uh, that he was so angry about Jesus. And he shared with me how he was sexually abused growing up in, in, a, in a Catholic school. It's an important topic because not that long ago I was speaking with a, a young woman whose church growing up had been ripped apart by horrible false teaching. Uh, a young person in the church had become quite unwell and this teaching was that, it, that if that the family and those around them had enough faith, the child would be healed. The child wasn't healed, tragically died. The family was blamed for not having enough faith. So you should care about this topic, this, this talk uh, on eldership, because leadership in the local church is absolutely critical, isn't it? It's critical. I'm sure we, we could all tell stories of individuals, of churches as a whole, that have been completely ripped apart, uh, just demolished by horrific leadership. Leadership in the local church is critical for the spiritual health of every individual, each and every one of you who's a, a part of our church, and critical for the health of our church as a whole. So we really have to think really clearly about who we want to nominate and elect as elders of our church. So I hope you're all ears now, right? If you thought this is boring, let, let's like this is a serious deal. It's a big deal. Uh, so we've got that. You can see on the outline on the inside of the Connect card uh, that gives you an idea of the territory we're going to traverse today. We've got uh, three general principles from the New Testament about leadership. Uh, we've got six uh, biblical qualifications for eldership in particular. That's where we'll spend most of our time. Then uh, four wise requirements and one final exhortation or encouragement. 
So let's first look at these three kind of general principles from the New Testament about leadership. Uh, the first that we've got to be really, really clear on uh, is that Jesus Christ is the head of his church. If you, if you want to think about org charts for, for the Christian church, Jesus Christ must always be at the top. Jesus Christ is the head of his church. Uh, so yeah, if you've got a Bible, we're going to be doing some flicking around. You might want to uh, read the verses yourself. But uh, in Ephesians 5, verse 23, Paul says... Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Christ is the head of the church. Right? Colossians 1.18, Paul says, Christ is the head of the body which is the church. So the New Testament makes it really clear over and over again that the church is a body and as a body it gets its leadership, its strength, its nourishment from its head, its head who is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's important to remember as we think about eldership, local church leadership, because it reminds us uh, that pastors aren't the head of the church, that I'm not the head of the church, that elders aren't the head of the church, that the congregation aren't the head of the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Jesus Christ is the head of his church. And the second general principle uh, is that all Christians are priests and ministers. Right? Jesus Christ is the head of the church and all Christians are priests and ministers. Now for some of you that might sound a little bit strange because you might have thought that me as the pastor of this church, I'm, I'm a priest or at least I'm a bit like a priest. Uh, but as far as I can tell, the New Testament says absolutely nothing about ordained ministers being priests. Why is that? Well, it's because we only need one priest. What does a priest do? They mediate the relationship between sinful human beings and a holy and righteous God. They, they sort out that relationship. They're kind of the go-between. Who is it that does that? Not uh, just some human priest down at the local church, but Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 says, There is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. So it's through Jesus Christ, our great high priest, through his sacrifice on the cross for our sins, that we have direct access to God. We don't have to come to God through some local pastor, a local priest. We don't have to come to God through a particular saint, through Mary, through some holy relic, through a new elder that we elect in the church. Right? We, we come to God through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the one mediator between us and God. So there's nothing in the New Testament about pastors or ministers being priests, because every Christian is a priest, in a subordinate sense, in the sense that we, as the people of God, through our words and deeds, can, bring, can kind of mediate the blessings of God's kingdom into his world. So that's why the New Testament says, for example, in 1 Peter 2 verse 9, uh, Peter says, uh, but you, right, that's the, the, the Christians there across Asia Minor, you are a chosen people and a royal priesthood. Well, you are us together. We're all priests. Revelation 1 verse 5, Christ loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. Uh, so in, in the New Testament, Every Christian is a priest. 
or at least together as the people of God. We act uh, in a priestly way, bringing the blessings of God's kingdom into God's world. Every Christian is a priest and every Christian is a minister. Well, we might think our oh, ministers are the people who've gone to theological college and the, the ones who've been set aside or ordained in some special ceremony, right? No, every Christian's a minister. Right? Uh, Ephesians 4 verse 12, Ephesians 4 verse 12 says that my role as the kind of pastor, t- or one of the pastor teachers in this church uh, is to qu- equip all of you, right, the, the whole body of Christ to do works of service or works of ministry, Right, to, to teach the word of God in such a way that all of us are, are acting as ministers to one another, serving one another, so that the whole body of Christ is being built up. Uh, so Jesus Christ is the head of his church, and underneath Jesus Christ is the body of Christ in which every one of us is a priest, and every one of us is a minister. Uh, so why do we need some sort of official leadership? Why have designated or ordained leaders in the local church? Why not just have everyone underneath the the headship of Christ doing their ministry, their priestly thing? Well, it's because of the third principle, uh, which is that Christ calls and gifts particular people to lead and care for his flock. The New Testament makes this clear. So if you've got a Bible, you could flick to Hebrews chapter 13. This is just one example. Hebrews chapter 13, Uh, in Hebrews 13, uh, from verse 7 we read, uh, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And if you've got that chapter open, you can scan down to verse 17 in the same chapter. Uh, We read, Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority. Because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden. For that would be of no benefit to you. So these verses and others, they they make it clear that Christ calls and gives particular people to lead and care and kind of shepherd his flock. And insofar as those leaders are being faithful to Christ and his word, uh, the congregation, the people of God under them, uh, are called to listen to them and respect them and submit to them, to make their job uh, as easy as possible, the the writer of the Hebrews seems to be saying. So why does the Presbyterian church call these local leaders elders? We're saying we're going to elect some elders of our church. Well, once again, it's because of a, I think if you do a quick survey of the New Testament, uh, you'll find that there are really only two official leadership positions in the church. Right? A whole bunch of different roles, but it seems that there are really only two official leadership positions. There are elders, uh, which are sometimes also called pastors or overseers, and then there are deacons, elders and deacons. I say that elders are sometimes called pastors or overseers because often those three words are used really interchangeably. Right, so yeah, if you look, if you've got a Bible, flick uh, to one Peter, First Peter chapter five. First Peter chapter five. It's a good example of these words just being used interchangeably to refer to the same position in the church. First Peter chapter five from verse one. Uh, Peter says to the elders among you. 
I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Right? So, so Peter's speaking to the elders amongst these churches. But then look what he says in verse 2. He says, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. That's the word for pastor. He's saying to, to the elders, be pastors of God's flock that is under your care. And then he says, watching over them. Right? Doing the work of overseeing them. So just in these couple of verses, he calls them elders and pastors and overseers, but it's clear that he's addressing the same group of people. And this happens several times in the New Testament. The words pastor, elder, and overseer are used interchangeably to refer to the same leadership position. So in the, in the New Testament church, uh, we've got two official leadership positions, elders and deacons. And if you read through the New Testament, uh, you'll see that elders were appointed in basically every church that was established. If you read through the book of Acts in particular, you get to Acts 15 and there's elders in the church in Jerusalem. Acts 20 and there's elders in the church in Ephesus. You flick to the, to the book of Titus and you see that there's elders in all the churches uh, on Crete. Uh, 1 Peter, we've just looked at that. Elders in all these churches across Asia Minor. Uh, and that's because, uh, in fact, if you want to flick to, to Acts 14, verse 23. Acts 14, verse 23. I'm flicking there myself. Acts 14, verse 23. I should have brought my paper Bible. But I must say, if you don't know, I have a vision impairment and the Bible on my phone is set at a font size that is really easy for me to read, whereas my paper Bible is not always. So Acts 14, verse 23, this is getting towards the end of Paul's first missionary journey. And we read here, uh, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders uh, for them in, in, uh, in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. So Paul and Barnabas was at their first missionary journey. They planted all these different churches. Then they returned to the churches soon after to appoint elders in each of the churches so that they can continue uh, to be strengthened in the word of the Lord. This is the New Testament pattern. God intends for his church uh, to be led and cared for by a group of elders. So I'm saying we're going into this process of electing up to two new elders uh, for our church here at Darabin Prezi. What's the process for doing that? Uh, I'm sure all of you are excited about this, but for maximum clarity, we're going to put up a slide on the screen. The AV guys are, are all over it. Uh, so we'll whack up this slide. Um, hopefully it's going to come up. I'll step to the side. No, not that one. One that has a whole bunch of different dates. There it is. Wonderful. So this is the process. This is kind of the timeline, just for maximum transparency and clarity, hopefully. Today, we're obviously August 11th. We're announcing the election of up to two new elders. I'm preaching on the biblical qualifications of eldership. Then between today and next Sunday, at any time in that period, but obviously it will mostly be at Sunday services, I imagine, uh, we'll be accepting nominations for eldership. Oh, this is a nomination period. Then between August 25th and September the 1st, uh, we'll be conducting elections. Right, so everyone will get, uh, all the members of the church will get a ballot paper, uh, and those who've been nominated will be on there, and it will basically say, do you support this man or these men being elected as elders of this church? Yes or no? Indicate your support or otherwise. Then on September the 2nd, the existing elders will meet to count the votes. 
to get a sense of, is the congregation supportive of these men being elected as elders? Assuming that they are, or, or, or those, uh, those men, or the, which men are, um, have received sufficient votes, then on September the 9th will announce to the congregation that basically that these, uh, this man or these men are elders-elect. Right, it's basically, you know, the president-elect, they win the election, they haven't taken office yet. That's the basic idea. Right, so here these, these guys are elders-elect. And, and, and what happens then, on um, September the 9th, I'll read this funky thing called the edict, uh, which is a bit like that moment in the wedding, uh, where in old-school weddings, where the, the uh, celebrant or whatever would say, speak now or forever hold your peace. It's kind of saying, unless you raise some serious or substantial objection, this man or these men are going to be ordained and inducted as elders of this church. And that'll happen probably sometime in October. Oh, we could do it sooner than that, but we recognise it's school holidays. We think it's an important thing, so we might put it back uh, into October. That's the process, kind of uh, officially, uh, and we're kicking off that process today. Uh, but what that process makes clear is that it, we, we need to make sure we understand the biblical qualifications for eldership before we start nominating someone for eldership, right? So that's why I'm preaching on this passage from 1 Timothy 3 today. We can, oh, thanks, yeah, we can take that down. So we're going to look at 1 Timothy 3. I want to give you six uh, biblical qualifications for eldership, six of them. And this is what we'll spend most of the rest of our time. Uh, the first qualification, right, I'm just going to put this uh, right out there, up front, uh, is that uh, only men can be elders, Right? That's, a, that's a qualification. Only men can be elders, at least in the Presbyterian Church, at Darabin Presbyterian Church. Now, some of you perhaps feel uh, uh, angry about that or frustrated by that. And before you start kind of throwing uh, Bibles at me or, or various other objects, uh, I want to give you three brief uh, points from 1 Timothy uh, itself uh, for why we come to that position. Uh, let me tell you, it's not because it's an easier position to hold. We recognise that that's a little bit countercultural. We come to the position because it's where God's word drives us. So let me give you three points. The first is uh, that in chapter 2, if you've got 1 Timothy 3 open, if you flick back to chapter 2, verse 12, uh, you'll see in that verse that Paul says that in the church he doesn't permit women uh, to teach or to exercise authority over men. That's a tough verse to understand and apply on one level. Uh, but just a few verses after that, in the passage we're looking at today, Paul starts speaking about elders. And what are the two primary roles of elders but being able to teach and to exercise oversight or authority in the household of God? So it seems clear that however else you might apply that uh, 1 Timothy 2 verse 12, it does apply that, that, that God's intention is that it would be men that would hold the office of elders in his church. That's the first thing. And the second thing is that the passage in 1 Timothy 3 here uh, kind of reinforces that in a couple of different ways. The first is that in verse 2, uh, you'll see there, Paul says that an elder must be faithful to his wife. And that is to say, an elder must be a man, right? a man who is faithful to his wife, if indeed he is married. A third, in verses 4 and 5, we uh, see that Paul uh, makes a connection between uh, leadership in the church, right, the household of God, and leadership in the home, the family household. 
reality, his point seems to be that God calls men, husbands and fathers, uh, to exercise leadership and and care uh, in their own families. And likewise, he calls men to lead and shepherd his family. Of course, that does not mean that women can never lead or teach or shepherd. That is not what I'm saying. Please don't hear me saying that. I can think of lots of women who've, who've had a, a, an incredibly significant role in leading and caring and, and, and shepherding me in my life. And many women here at DPC have significant roles in leading and teaching and shepherding. We want to encourage that. We want to empower them in that. But it does mean that our understanding of these passages and other, the broader teaching of the New Testament, uh, is that here at DPC only men can be elected as elders. That's the first qualification. You can talk to me more about that later on. Uh, The second qualification uh, is that any particular man must actually have a desire to be an elder. Look there in chapter 3, 1 Timothy 3 verse 1. Uh, Here is a trustworthy saying, Paul says, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Right? If you want to be appointed as an elder, you first got to have a desire to be an elder. Now, of course, people could have a desire to be an elder for all sorts of ungodly motivations. Right? I told some stories at the start. Some people just want to be elders because they want more power in the church. They want greater influence or control over things. They're not happy with things. They want to power seats so they can pull some more strings and have more influence. They want more status in the church, perhaps. All sorts of ungodly desires that people might, reasons people might have to be an elder. But that doesn't change the fact that it's not worth being an, an elder if you don't have an inner desire to do it. A, a desire kind of born out of particular convictions about Christ, uh, the truth and power of his gospel, the preciousness of his church, the need for them to be led and cared for by godly shepherds. That kind of deep desire and conviction protects elders from two things. It protects them first from hypocrisy. Because uh, historically a whole lot of men have been appointed as elders, in not just in Presbyterian churches but other churches and no doubt other leadership structures. They're appointed because they know how to put on a show each Sunday. They know how to do church, they know how to impress people. So they're they're elevated to a position of leadership, uh, but internally there's no real spiritual life. No passion for Christ, no deep convictions about the truth and power of the gospel. And so over time they've got this public face to their ministry, but there's a massive gulf between that and their arid, dry, almost non-existent spiritual life on the inside. They just become hypocrites, causing damage to themselves and to the church. So we've got to be careful that the elders we elect actually have a deep desire to be elders, born out of a love for Christ and his gospel. And then the second thing this deep desire protects elders from is burnout. Not guaranteed to protect them, but the reality is that being an elder can be really hard, quite demanding and stretching in different ways. Uh, so if you don't have a, a deep passion or, or conviction to do the role, it won't be long, uh, won't be long before you just throw in the towel, I think. You'll get tired, you'll get frustrated, you'll get really discouraged, and you'll burn out. So you do need this deep sense of, of calling to the role, if I can use that language. 
That's the second qualification. The third is uh, we want to be sure, and this is probably the, the, the hub of things, the, the central thing, we want to be sure that the elders we elect exemplify godly character. Look at verses 2 and 3. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Now, in some ways, that list of things isn't that unique, is it? Like, if you were to say, this is what every Christian could be like, it wouldn't be that far off the mark. And the difference is that elders are supposed to uh, exemplify these traits. Right? They're supposed to be models to the rest of the church of God in these traits. So, so let's look at each one. Uh, the first is above reproach. Now, that's a bit tricky, because oh, I'm fairly certain that Paul's not saying that elders have to be perfect, He's not saying they have to be sinless. But he is saying that if you examine the life of an elder, there shouldn't be any obvious sin that would disqualify them from the position of eldership. Any obvious sin that you would need to rebuke them for, that you would need to reproach them for. There's a sense in which they're above reproach. And the second thing there is Paul uh, uses three words uh, that all come at the the concept of self-control from different angles. So you see there he says elders should be temperate, which is to say that that elders should be stable and clear-headed men. You know, someone who's volatile, who's all over the place, who's given to real emotional extremes. Be stable, temperate, moderate. Are respectable, Paul says, generally are respected in the church. Uh, but notice down in verse 7, it's not just in the church. Right? You've got to have a, a good reputation with outsiders. So elders uh, should, uh, you should ask, you know, ask the prospective elders how they go at work, at the local school, at the sporting club. Uh, temperate, respectable. Self-controlled, Paul says. And in verse 3, he says, in particular, we should see their self-control in how they manage alcohol and anger. Alcohol and anger. Elders should not be given to drunkenness, Paul says. He's not saying that alcohol in in and of itself is evil or bad. So, you know, if you want to be really, really holy, you shouldn't drink alcohol at all. I don't think that's what he's saying. But he is saying that no elder should be addicted to alcohol or mastered by alcohol. Right? Because how can someone claim to be exemplary in having Jesus as their Lord and Master if they're really mastered by alcohol or anything else, you see? So an elder should be an example in not being mastered by anything other than the Lord Jesus as far as they can. Likewise, that they shouldn't be mastered or controlled by their anger. Oh, on the flip side, the elders should be master, should be mastering their anger, should be in control of their anger, so that they can be gentle, Paul says, and not violent or quarrelsome. Uh, so we should really remember Paul's words to, to Timothy in his second letter, to Timothy t- uh, two, uh, where from verse twenty-three, Paul says this to Timothy. 2 Timothy 2, uh, verse 23, he says, Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, because you know that they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful, 
Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a, a knowledge of the truth. There's really two sides here. Right? Elders can't be wimps. The elders do have to stand up to those who are opposing the truth of God's word. They actually have to have enough boldness to do that. On the other hand, elders can't be kind of wild. Can't be whips, but they can't be wild. So they can't be people who are just going to blow their stack every time someone says uh, a word that's slightly off. You know, some, some people have kind of got a heresy radar. They're kind of frothing at the mouth every time they hear something that's slightly off and they're ready to attack. It's not always helpful in an elder. Some patience, some uh, kindness, some gentle instruction to bring people around to the truth of God's word. An elder should be self-controlled. Uh, the third uh, character uh, qualification is elders should be hospitable. Right here, if you want to lead and care for God's flock, uh, you have to actually have people involved in your home, in your life. You can't just be a lover of books. You have to be a lover of people. You can't be a complete hermit. You know, there's going to be extroverts and introverts. That's okay, different personalities. But you can't be sort of so reclusive that you can't be warm and relational and hospitable with people. People are going to have different contexts. I understand that. Some people will thrive in the big... Some elders will thrive after church in the kind of big gathering. Some will thrive with two or three people around a table. That's fine. But there has to be some warmth and some hospitality. And the bonus of hospitality is that as you welcome people into your home, into your life, at the people of the church, they actually get a chance to see your exemplary character. To see how you relate to your kids, how you relate to your wife, how you relate to your housemates. So elders should be hospitable. Fourth, our elders must not be lovers of money. And maybe that... Uh, perhaps doesn't seem like as much of a temptation maybe given that our elders aren't paid for the most part but it's still important right isn't it true the church has often been accused of just wanting to get its greedy hands on people's money Uh, many people in this church give generously to the work of the gospel in and through our church and the elders have at least some say on how that money ought to be used so we've got to be clear that the, the, the spiritual oversight of our church, those men must not be lovers of money. Right? So that's the third qualification. Elders uh, must exemplify godly character. The fourth is that elders should be men who can manage their own households, manage their own family. Look in verse 4. Uh, the elder, Paul says, must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. Uh, if anyone does not ha- know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? And then verse five there reminds me a little bit of a, a, a little bit of Jesus' parable in Matthew chapter twenty-five. If you, I don't know if you, you can read the parable later on, but Jesus basically says, "If you can't serve faithfully in small things, how can I trust you to be faithful in big things?" That seems to be Paul's line of reasoning here. But if a man can't be a faithful shepherd of his own family, how can he possibly be trusted to be a faithful shepherd of God's family? Get him to sort out his own house first, 
And then he can have some interest in helping to lead God's house. So before we appoint elders, we, we as far as we can, uh, should take a close look at how they relate to their family. Now I understand that it's a different cultural context, isn't it? We're fairly private. Often people don't see a lot of our family life, perhaps outside of Sunday or maybe a gospel community. Maybe if you're particularly hospitable, they might see more, right? But as far as we can, uh, can tell, we should ask, verse 3, uh, is this man faithful to his wife? Right? It doesn't mean elders have to be married. You know, we know Paul wasn't married and Jesus wasn't married. But if an elder is married, he must be faithful to his wife. We need to ask. You know, elders ought not be in the habit of, of lusting inappropriately after women. women. They ought not, be, ought not be addicted to pornography. They certainly shouldn't be committing adultery. Only men who are being faithful to their earthly brides are fitting to be shepherds of the bride of Christ. But how can you trust someone to be a faithful shepherd of the bride of Christ if they're not faithful to their earthly bride? So I ask, is this man being faithful to his wife? And verse 4, uh, is the... Um, if the, if the man has children, uh, do they respect and obey him? Now that's tricky to apply, isn't it? Right, it doesn't mean that the elders' children have to be perfect. You know, I'm conscious of, that, conscious of that as a pastor. Right? There's a sense in which I'm supposed to be exemplary, right? So people ought to be looking at how I manage my kids, but my kids aren't going to be perfect, and I'm not going to be a perfect parent. So we do have to be a bit careful here. I'm not saying that elders' children have to be perfect or sinless, I don't think we're even saying that the children of elders must grow up to be Christians. But we are saying that while an elder's children live in the family home, they should respect and obey him as their father. Fourth, that's the fourth qualification. Does this man manage his own household well? The fifth is in verse 6. Look in verse 6. An elder must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. That's pretty strong. This is obviously very important. Uh, and the point is that we should never rush to promote someone into eldership. Uh, we shouldn't rush, Paul says, because the risk is that, that the man will become conceited, he'll be puffed up with pride at the thought, well, I'm an elder in this church. And that'll only be destructive for them and for the church. So we mustn't rush. In chapter 5, Paul says, don't be hasty with the laying on of hands to ordain people to their eldership. We mustn't rush into this. Having said that, we've got to think a bit carefully about how we apply this because I think when most of us think about elders, we think that elders should, in general, uh, be men, or, you know, men or women, you might think, but I'm saying men, uh, who have been Christians for a really long time. They're amongst the oldest people in age in the church. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but I mentioned before that Paul, after his first missionary journey, Acts 14, verse 23, just a few months later, came back to those churches and appointed men as elders. Now, I reckon by our standards... Many of those men would have been relatively recent converts. It was just like after the one missionary journey and Paul's come back. These are not men who have been Christians for 10, 15, 20 years. So I think that the important question we should ask 
is do I think that this man is humble enough and teachable enough to not get puffed up with pride at being appointed as an elder? Irrespective of their age. They might, be, they might be 50, they might be 35. Do I think that they're humble and teachable enough to not get puffed up with pride at being an elder, not become conceited? And finally, elders uh, have to be able to teach. You see that there? That means an elder uh, must not only have a good knowledge of God's truth, but they have to have the ability to communicate God's truth. Uh, to communicate it in such a way that they're uh, teaching sound doctrine and refuting false doctrine. You can read that in Titus 1, verses 8 and 9 about eldership. That doesn't mean all elders have to be doing teaching up front, like preaching, but it does mean that we want all our elders uh, to have an active teaching ministry of some kind. Maybe it's a gospel community, maybe uh, it's one-to-one Bible reading or kids' church. Maybe it's pastoral visitation to, to share the word of God with people. Whatever it is, elders must be able to teach. So those are the six qualifications I've drawn out. Elders uh, must be men, must have a clear desire to be an elder, must exemplify godly character, must manage their own household well, must not be recent converts, must be able to teach. Now much more briefly, uh, let's look at these four wise requirements for eldership. We've looked at the Bible Then in the Presbyterian Church, we've also got a kind of constitution, some rules. And those rules give us, I think, four wise requirements for eldership. Uh, The first is that elders uh, must be members of the local church. There's no verse in the Bible uh, that says that. I I acknowledge that. Uh, But if you're uh, going to be elected as an elder of a particular Presbyterian church, it makes sense to me that you should first want to become a member of that particular Presbyterian church. And frankly, if you're not prepared to become a member of the church, then you probably shouldn't become an elder. right? The standards for eldership are higher than membership. So that's the first, I think, wise requirement. Elders uh, must be members of the church. Second, uh, they must be members uh, for more than 12 months. Uh, which really goes back to that whole idea of not rushing people into this position. It's an important position. When someone comes to your church, they, they, they might seem like they, they just flash you know, bells and whistles, elder, all over them. Right? But it takes time to get to know people, to discern their character and gifting, whether they're suitable for eldership. And so we have this wise requirement. They've got to be a member for 12 months. Third, uh, they've got to be over the age of 21 Once again, nothing in the Bible that says thou shalt only appoint elders who are over 21. But in general, it's probably pretty rare for someone younger than 21 to fulfil the biblical qualifications for eldership. Over 21 is what we go with. And fourth, elders uh, must complete a suitable training course. Now, technically, the, the rules of the Presbyterian Church say they've just got to complete this course before they're ordained and inducted as elders. Which means that in theory, someone could be nominated as an elder, elected as an elder, before they've even looked at the course. Then they get ordained and inducted. Right? Now, we think at Darren Prezi that it is much wiser for potential elders to complete the course before they accept nomination. Right? It just makes sense. If you're going to accept nomination for a position, why not examine the t- position in detail and work out whether you think you're suitable for taking up that position. 
Oh, so you, you would know, we've advertised this eldership training course uh, over the past couple of months, invited anyone who has a desire to explore eldership to come along, and, and uh, several men have come along to that. Oh, so those are the four kind of wise requirements, we think. Uh, elders uh, must be members, members for more than 12 months, over the age of 21, and they have to have completed this suitable uh, training course. So with all that in mind, I, I just want to finish with a final encouragement, a bit of an exhortation, because I, I know that we've got busy lives, lots of things going on, and probably the election of elders to our church is not at the forefront of your mind. I understand that. Right? But, but it is really critical. It's really very important. I told some of those stories at the start. It's very important that the people we appoint to these roles. And so please, my, my encouragement is please do be praying. I take this process seriously and be praying that over the next few weeks God would uh, guide us as a church and raise up suitably, uh, a suitably qualified man or, or two men who are going to be godly shepherds of our church going forward. Please be praying about this. Uh, let me pray now along those lines. Uh, our gracious Father, uh, we thank you for our Lord Jesus who is indeed our chief shepherd and our good shepherd who laid down his life for us, that we might become a part of your people. Oh, we thank you that uh, we as your people are incredibly precious to you uh, and that you entrust our care, at least <coughs> in an earthly sense, uh, to godly uh, leaders in the local church. Uh, Father, we do pray for the existing elders in our church. Help us to be humble, uh, give us all the wisdom that we need. Help us to remain faithful to Christ and his word. Help us to be filled with love for the flock here and to give ourselves sacrificially and joyfully to care for them. And we pray for our church as we uh, go through this process of appointing up to two new elders. And we pray, Father, that uh, the training that's been done would have been uh, a suitable process of, of discernment already. And we pray that uh, you would indeed... Uh, only have us ordain and induct elders of our church uh, who uh, fit the biblical uh, qualifications and are going to be a blessing to the work of the gospel in and through our church. Uh, for the glory of our Lord Jesus we pray. Amen.